Good morning, First Baptist Church of Gray Gables. I uh, hope you all had a marvelous week. I am freezing cold in the sanctuary. Uh, not, uh, I'm completely pleased with what God has sovereignly allowed us to have during weather, but I am a Floridian through and through. And so if you see breath coming out of my mouth, it's because uh, it's cold in here. Uh, but I'm happy that you've tuned in with us this morning. I'm excited about this morning's uh, dive into the text. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 1. Hey, the sanctuary is decorated in our uh, Christmas decorations. It looks as beautiful as always. Miss Joyce has done a fabulous job. If you'd like, uh, we'd, we'd happy to send you as many pictures. If you're pandemic and home during the, the holiday season, uh, please let us know. We'll give you a little walkthrough video or uh, give you some pictures. Just, just text us or send an email personally. We'd love to show you um, how beautiful our sanctuary is during this Christmas time. Uh, and so go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking, uh, beginning a three-part Christmas series. Uh, and this morning, we're going to be looking at the idea that Christ came, that Christ has come into the world. And then the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at what Christ has accomplished in his coming, what he's purchased for us as believers. And so I want to start out by asking you, where did what we think of Christmas come from? Where did what we think of Christmas come from? What I mean by that is on December 25th, 1 AD, did you have Joseph, the Virgin Mary, and baby Jesus in the midst of the celebrations of Bethlehem town with St. Nick and his reindeer and his flying sleigh just stopping by? Uh, if so, did he have with him frankincense and myrrh? Was the table stuffed with trees specially decorated with uh, little snow globes etched with welcome Jesus happy birthday? Were the shepherds and the wise men sipping on open eggnog and the glow and light of Rudolph's red nose? How had Mary and Joseph had time to wrap all the presents on that first Christmas morning? Did they say Merry Christmas to one another? See, Christmas is a Christian holiday, right? Well, sort of. <laughs> what if we just started taking the Christmas we're familiar with today, the Christmas that we all know, what if we just started taking it apart historically and examining it through the lens of history? All right, we can even start back 70 years ago. We can start with Frosty the Snowman, 1950, song written by Gene Autry. The, the, the children's animated TV special was made in 1969. See, back in 1950, when Autry wrote the song Frosty the Snowman, he was looking for a follow-up hit to his, his hit song of 1949 around the Christmas season, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, so he came up with Frosty the Snowman. But even Rudolph hasn't been around all that long. Some of you have been along, around longer than Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. See, Rudolph, the fa most famous reindeer of all, was the product of Robert L. May's imagination in 1939. The copywriter wrote a poem about a reindeer to help lure customers into the Montgomery Ward department store. Now, in case you're worried, I'm going to let you know, parents, I'm going to leave out the history of the red and white one so I don't get any strongly worded letters, but I will tell you about Belschnickel, the crotchety fur-clad Christmas gift bringer of Southwest German folklore in the 1830s, who came and determined whether children were being 
impish or admirable in their behavior and gave them gifts accordingly. Belschnickel is nigh. Well, what about Christmas trees? Uh, Christmas trees as we know them began in 1700s in Germany and became more popular in the English-speaking world when the British Queen Victoria married the German Prince Albert who brought along his Christmas tree tradition. And so the custom spread around the British public in 1840s and got over here to America in the 1870s. Speaking of the 1870s, Christmas was not even a public holiday in the United States until 1870. In the 1860s, in Germany, Christian, uh, Christmas decorations were first produced for sale. That's where Christmas decorations came about. In 1843, we saw the first commercially produced Christmas cards. In 1828, Joel R. Poinsett, the American minister to Mexico, brought back the red and green plants that we so associate with Christmas these days. We call them poinsettias after him. Six years before that, Clement Clark Moore wrote a poem called A Visit from St. Nicholas, which later became widely known as the night before Christmas. Twas the night before Christmas. If you go back to the first Christmas under our Constitution, it was December 25th, 1789. The Congress is still in session on that day. It was just a regular work day like any other day. And a dozen years before that, George Washington had led troops to attack at the Battle of Trenton on Christmas Day. Not as some special weird strategy. It was just December 25th. And December 25th was not that big a deal. Protestants, by and large, tended not to celebrate Christ Mass, which is where we get our word Christmas from. It was one of those feasts and holidays which were not in the Bible, and so Protestants dismissed it. The date, December 25th, we find associated with Christ's birth as early as the 4th century, but only as early as the 4th century. Jesus never taught his disciples to commemorate a certain date for his birth. There certainly was no snowman or poinsettias or Christmas cards or Christmas trees either. That we don't even know the exact date when Jesus was born. All the early Christian churches before the 4th century seem to have zero interest in this. Christians in the 3rd century seem to be like Christians in the 2nd century and 1st century. They simply didn't care. And those Christians in the 1st century, remember, were taught by the disciples of Jesus who were taught by Jesus himself. And they were apparently taught nothing about particularly when he was born. So there is no significance actually to the date, December 25th whatsoever. But I would say that they knew what Christmas is all about. Now, listen, I, I know what you're thinking. I certainly don't mean to be a Scrooge or a Grinch about Christmas. Christmas is a wonderful time of celebration. If you know me at all, you know it is absolutely my favorite holiday. It's a celebration that we will sing about all month long. But the joy that we sing about in church when it comes to our Christmas carols would definitely seem strange, though, if the climax of Christmas is family, gifts, and a meal. I mean, family gifts in a meal are wonderful, wonderful things, but they are not the kind of things that make you jump for joy the way George Bailey does at the end of It's a Wonderful Life. It's not as big as all that. But if you understand what this news is about, 
If you understand what we really are celebrating during this season, this over-the-top joy of the birth of Jesus Christ makes sense. That's what brings us to Matthew's gospel. And so Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, let's read God's word together. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take uh, to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this, your word. We know that we live uh, not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So help us to understand your word and understand it rightly. Help us to have our eyes opened and ears open and hearts open to receive what you would have for us in this, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in this well-known story, I want us to look at three headings and three points. I want us to look at a couple, a book, and a baby boy. That's our outline. That's our heading. Let's go ahead and begin with the couple. Let's examine this couple. Here in verse 18, we first come to Mary. She was probably a relatively normal Jewish teenage girl at this point. And I think it, it, part of the reason it's so hard at times to understand this story is because even though it's familiar with us, it's been embellished to the point of distortion. Uh, for instance, when we think of Mary, we need to realize that Scripture in no way presents Mary as sinless. Uh, scripture in no way at all presents Mary as a sinless human being. Unlike what Pope Pius IX on December 8, 1854 declared as dogma to be believed in the Roman Catholic Church. Mary was put in an unusual position by God, and she trusted God through that position. Now, friends, none of us are going to be called to be put in the position that Mary was in particularly, but we are called to trust God in ways that sometimes we can't fully understand. So she is a tremendously empathetic figure for us. That is why Mary, in her example, is such a real encouragement to us, but... We don't worship her, and we certainly don't pray to her. In fact, when Matthew tells the story of the birth of Jesus, he doesn't even focus much on Mary, but on Joseph. Perhaps a little background on Joseph's discovery of this most uncertain, surprising conception would be something that would be helpful for us. 
we must remember it would be common for first marriages to take place in their teens during that time. The first year of marriage was always called the betrothal period. It began by the groom paying a bride price for the family of the bride that he was going to marry. And once it was agreed upon, those who were engaged would continue to live in their respective families for six months or even up to a year. Now, Galilee was probably a very conservative area of Jewish practice. We have evidence of that. So they seem not to allow the betrothed to have any time alone together during that year. The husband would spend that year preparing his home, the place for his bride during these months. And at the end of that initial period, if the woman was to be found pure, there was going to be a grand procession to the husband's house where there would be a public wedding ceremony and then the wedding would be consummated right after. Now, had there been any premarital activity with someone else during the betrothal period, it would not be regarded simply as fornication. It would be regarded as adultery against the groom and against God. So you see, there in verse 18, it says that Mary was found with child. She was found with child. Matthew doesn't say how it was found, but as you know, pregnancy does tend to show itself. So, so today we read this in this story and we wonder what would Joseph do? This has got to be such a hard situation for him. Well, he resolves to divorce Mary secretly. Again, recall the difference between this culture we're dealing with in the first century and our own culture. You see how Joseph is already being called Mary's husband. It points to the fact that their betrothal was a legally binding thing, unlike our engagements today. It was a legal arrangement that had been publicly agreed upon. And so this would be more serious than breaking an engagement, but just shy of the divorce of a couple who had uh, consummated their marriage and already had a family. So a situation like this, when the woman was found to be with child outside of the one that she was betrothed with, the law of Moses would actually call for the death of those adultery participants. Just think of the woman in John 8 that comes to mind. But the arrival of the Romans had largely ended the Jewish executions like this. So here in this situation, it was no longer common for someone to be put to death for their unfaithfulness. Public divorce was now the common penalty for the unfaithfulness of the betrothed. But that kind of public shame would have made any future marriage for Mary very, very difficult. And if Mary could not get married, then she would have no way to support herself as the years went on. So we see in verse 19 that Joseph did not want to go the route of public divorce. He could resolve to divorce her differently and secretly. He'd maybe protect his reputation a little, but certainly it would be protecting Mary and her child even more. And see, I think that's part of the reason that Joseph is referred to as a just man in our text. He was merciful. See, in the Bible, goodness doesn't just involve keeping rules, but involves loving and serving people. So doing this secretly, quietly, rather than publicly, would risk being able to recover the bride price that he had paid to Mary's parents. But nevertheless, for Mary's sake, this is what he was going to do. And on top of this, I know this gets lost in arranged marriages in the first century, but on top of this, Joseph very well may have very deeply loved Mary. 
When he laid his head on his bed and considered these things, he may have very well been laying down with a broken heart. That's when we see in verse 20 of our text that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and told him that Mary's conception was divine. Now, Luke records that Gabriel had already appeared to Mary and announced the conception, but now we have this latter angelic announcement to Joseph. The angel does not say, do not, or the angel says, do not be afraid, but, but usually when angels say, do not be afraid, it's at the appearance of the angel themselves, but that's not the case here. The angel tells Joseph, do not be afraid, particularly of taking Mary as your wife. It was a fear of condoning the immorality of Mary, of taking another man's son as his own. If Mary could do this, what other faithfulness would await him in any family he might have? That's why it was so good that the angel appeared to Joseph and told him something about the origin in which uh, Mary had conceived. So you look down to verse 24 of our text, and it tells us that Joseph married Mary. He had obeyed what God had communicated through his messenger. He was just willing now to live down the gossip. See, I want you to see this. His fear of God would help him overcome any fear of man and how he would be regarded by others. See, I think this shows us that Joseph was obedient to God's instruction through the angel. Joseph's belief in what the angel had showed or had said, his belief in that showed itself in his actions. And friends, that is what faith always does. Faith shows itself in works. Trust shows itself in obedience. And that's what we see and learn from Joseph. So, all right, so much for this very famous couple. We know much about them already. Hopefully, you learned a little bit more. Let's go on and move to the second section of our outline here and look at a book. Let's look at the book. The book we find, to no one's surprise, I'm sure, is the Bible. We find this in verses 22 and 23. Matthew actually points out that this pregnancy fulfilled the scriptures. God lets Joseph know, so far as, as Mary is concerned, she is not a party to sin, but she is part of the fulfillment of the greatest promise the Lord has ever made to his people. And, and friends, if you're hearing this and maybe you're, uh, you're just visiting with relatives and this is your first time or you're not a Christian, uh, let me tell you, this is typical of the God of the Bible, not to speak to us in angelic dreams, but in speaking and communicating. In fact, this is the difference between the real God of the scriptures and the fake gods that we even worship today or find in the Old Testament. The fake gods we find mostly in the Old Testament are idols, images that are made with human hands. They may be beautiful pieces of gold, but they don't communicate. They are really just where we project what we want and then that God tells us to do that thing we want to do. But the one true God, the God of the scriptures, actually communicates. He tells us about himself and he tells us about us. So what we find in the gospel is that Mary, uh, the Matthew, excuse me, will speak explicitly of the scriptures continually being fulfilled. In fact, even if you just look through Matthew's gospel, he uses this expression that he uses in verse 22. Look at verse 22 where he says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by God through the prophet, say, he says that particular phrase 12 times even in just this gospel. 
In fact, Matthew has 47 Old Testament scriptures quoted throughout his book. Why? Because he's making the point that what Jesus did here had been foretold. God had promised this, and what we're seeing here is the fulfillment of his promises to us. Now, if you were to begin to investigate all 47 of, even just the Gospel of Matthew, sure, that would be a vast undertaking. It would be a heavy task. But since we have such an energetic congregation and we live in a culture of biblical disdain, let me encourage you to do so. Plus, you might have some extra time on your hands during our particular instance we find ourselves in. Uh, Let me just tell you, no matter what, if you were to seek the scriptures in this way, the Bible holds up to this kind of study. So if you are a skeptic about this, if you're hearing this and even just wondering about this, go ahead and knock yourself out. I can tell you after 12 years of studying this book thoroughly, I'm pretty confident that the Bible will hold up. And so I would encourage you, just start studying these prophecies being fulfilled. Just start thinking about the probability of one particular prophecy being fulfilled and then move on to the next one. Christianity, friends, is true. I don't know how each one of you that are Christians listening to this are doing in your Christian life, but my charge to you is I can tell you we should trust the Bible on everything it says because the Bible speaking is God speaking. And so isn't one implication simply to take away from this is that we should begin and continue to read it? I know many of our church reads their Bible on a continual occasion, but always be seeking to read it more and growing in it more. If this is really God's word, shouldn't we give as much time as we give anything else to considering what he has said in his word? What do we mean by saying we are followers of Christ if we don't follow the scriptures as Christ did? Look how timely this quotation of scripture was in the life of Joseph. Look how timely this application was in Joseph's life. It relieved his fear. It directed him and guided him in the way that he should go. He knew the scriptures were God's word. He knew that the scriptures were authoritative and true. Friends, if you want to grow in your relationship with the Lord, then you must spend time in his word and you must believe it. Build your relationship with the Lord. We should be those who recognize that God's word is true, that God's word is reliable, that God's word is completely trustworthy. It should define us as his people. That's why we as a church center our lives around the Bible because we believe this to be God's word. And so we're going to read the Bible. We're going to preach the Bible. We're going to memorize the Bible. And so that is our second heading. We look at the book, and I hope that you be encouraged to spend this Christmas season. Don't let all the distractions of the Christmas season distract you from spending more time in your word. In fact, if Christians should celebrate in any way the coming of the announcement of the Lord Jesus Christ, it should be by diving deep into his word. And of course, we have our Advent we've been walking through. My family's been walking through. We've so enjoyed it. Uh, we have an Advent reading calendar for you. If you would like a copy, please let us know. We'd be happy to get you one. So we've looked at the couple, we've looked at the book, but now especially, certainly we want to look at this baby boy. I want you to really consider five aspects we see here here about this baby boy's identity. Because this is really what this passage is meant for us to focus upon. It's the baby boy, Jesus. First, this baby is Christ, the son of David. In verse 18 of Matthew's gospel, he lets us know who he's talking about here. It's the birth of Jesus Christ. 
You've heard us speak on what Christ means, but in case you've forgotten or you simply haven't heard it before, it's not a family name. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his title. It means anointed one. It's the Greek Christos for the Hebrew Messiah. It's used together uh, with the son of David in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And it's clear that Jesus is being presented by Matthew as the fulfillment of the promise that God made not only to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7 and, and chapter 9 and chapter 53, but even earlier to King David in 2 Samuel 7. By using this title Christ, Matthew was telling us that this baby boy, this Jesus Christ is the promised coming anointed one. He is the successor of David, the leader and deliverer of his people. See, God made a promise to his people and a thousand years later, he kept it just when he meant to. And so we see this baby is Christ, the son of David. Second thing we see about the identity of this baby boy is this baby is virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. This baby Christ is virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is all throughout this passage. It reiterates it over and over again. It's in verse 18 and verse 20, verse 23, verse 25. God's own spirit was the person of the Godhead from whom Christ was conceived in the womb of the virgin Mary. See, Mary is how Christ identifies with humanity in him being fully man. See, the specialness is not in Mary. The specialness is in the Holy Spirit. And that's the point of this passage. God's own spirit bringing him about in this way. He is the one who would bring about the coming Messiah. So just as the Holy Spirit was the agent of creation in Genesis chapter 1, here we see he's the agent of conception in the coming of Christ through whom the new creation would come. And so, listen, again, if, if you're not a Christian hearing this, you certainly may have a whole bunch of questions about the virgin birth. Some questions can't be answered. I want to repeat that. Friends, hear me. Some questions can't be answered. And I think one of the things you learn as you grow in study, as you grow uh, in, in the academic world, is that you don't have to know everything in order to know something. All of us in life fail to know everything, and yet all of us really do know some things. So it's just false to think that because we can't answer exactly every question, therefore it must be that we really know nothing. No, it's just not true. Friends, we understand that virgin birth is true, and we can answer some questions about it, but the mere fact that you can ask questions that I cannot answer doesn't mean it's not true. You just have to understand that. Life doesn't work with us knowing nothing until we know everything. No. We begin partially by knowing some things. Also, I want to note here another implication uh, that is in this passage. Isn't it clear from this passage that life begins at conception? See, this angel did not appear to Joseph in a dream and have a conversation about the health of Mary's body. He did it. He is talking to Joseph about a life in Mary, the child who is in her womb. That life begins at conception and is tied into the very roots of human experience and of Christianity itself. This fact is true. Christ's virgin birth points us not to the virgin's perfection. It points us to the power of God's own spirit. 
And it also helps us to understand why we should understand this baby, the Christ. We should understand him as the incarnate son of God. Incarnate meaning flesh. That's the third thing we see here. This baby is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. That's what we see in verses 18 through 20. We realize that this child is the son of God, God incarnate. We see the Holy Spirit is not just a mere force. The Holy Spirit is a third person of the triune God. He is in some way that is not explained to us, but in also no way surprising, given that he's the agent of creation for the entire world, he is helping the son of God be made man. Being incarnate, the Messiah would therefore know what it's like to have parents, what it's like to have friends and siblings. It was our flesh, human flesh, that he took on. And this uh, divine one, therefore, has uniquely shared our sufferings and our sorrows. He's being prepared for that. It's vitally important that we understand that this baby boy, the Christ, is God incarnate, the Son of God. That he is fully God and fully man. Therefore, because he's fully man, he's able to empathize with us in every way. We've been tempted and tried, and yet he was sinless. Number four, we see in verse 23, the fourth thing about this identity of this baby. This baby, the Christ, is Emmanuel. Literally, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. El is Elohim. It is God. M is with, Emmanuel is with you or with us, and so Emmanuel is God with us. That's who Jesus is. And friends, I know we've heard this every year, we hear this all the time, but it's still just remarkable to dwell on this truth. This human race that has rebelled against God, God goes to be with them, with us. And so when Matthew is, what he's doing in verse 23 is he's quoting Isaiah 7, 14 about the virgin bearing Emmanuel. And, and this prophecy was something that was made 700 years earlier. God was telling King Ahaz about a sign of a coming deliverance from the threat of the Assyrians. And in the next chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 8, it seemingly seems to say that Isaiah's son is the first fulfillment of this, but that a second, fuller, com- com- more complete uh, fulfillment is intended is clear from the things that God continues to promise Isaiah. Because a, a verse that we well know is found in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. What this means is that this baby boy who is the Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. The prophecy of Isaiah 7, 14 then is really the seed of this whole passage in Matthew's gospel. So what we're seeing is not a new person coming into existence, but the eternal son of God becoming a man. That is why he can be said to fulfill the prophecy about God coming to be with us. And friends, listen, I I don't know what the month of December is like ahead of you. Um, You may be able to see family of friends, but likely you may not be able to see family and friends during this time. 
For many people, this time of year of Christmas and New Year's already before the pandemic was a great time of loneliness. So even more, especially this year. It's a time where we imagine everyone else is living a perfect life and the warm glow of Christmas lights with adoring family surrounding them. Friends, let me just encourage you, if you are tempted to loneliness in this time of year, oh, remember this promise. Remember this promise that Jesus is God with us. Remember that Christ is the one in whom God has come to be with us. In fact, when we finish Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28, one of the the last promises Jesus gave to his disciples is that he would always be with them. So if you're listening to this as a Christian, you know what it means to have his spirit living in you. Brothers and sisters, therefore, be comforted, be encouraged, be challenged to remember this. If you are a Christian, you are never truly alone. You always have Christ with you, a spirit dwelling in you. God has come to be with us through his son. So finally, the last identity we see in this baby boy is not only is he Christ, the son of David, he's virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of Mary. He's the incarnate son of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us, but he is also finally and importantly the savior of his people from their sins. He is Jesus. Jesus, the savior of his people, from their sins. We see this primarily in verses 21 and 25 of our text. In verse 21, you'll notice the angel told Joseph to name the baby Jesus exactly because he would save his people from their sins. Jesus or Yeshua, we think of it in the Old Testament form of Joshua. It means that initial Yah, Yahweh is God and Shua is saves. God saves or God will save. And it shows so clearly that what we need this year is not simply an example of love and goodwill. What we need is what we always need. We need a savior. We need someone to save us from our sins. Sin is what we've all done and that is what Jesus came to save his people from. So who are his people? It's his church. Matthew 26, we see it's all those who believe in him. So would Jesus therefore save them from Roman oppression, Roman occupation? It's what most of the Jews thought at the time of the Messiah, thought that what he was coming to do, but no. That's not what we see this first coming was for. He would not come to save them from Roman occupation. He was coming to save them from their sin. Revelation 1 describes Jesus in this way in Revelation 1, 5. Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. See, the sinfulness of human beings were, was clearly taught in the Old Testament scriptures. So they would have known and believed this well. And in fact, Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Friends, what this means is that God morally should be deaf to us. <laughs> Our sins should make God blind to us. 
But Jesus came to disrupt our death, to arrest us on our way to judgment. Each one of us are in danger of God's judgment, and we're living in that danger because of our sins. But God sent Jesus as a substitutionary sacrifice to take the place of all of those of us who would ever repent of our sins and trust in him for salvation. Then God raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He gave that sacrifice, presenting that sacrifice to his father, and it was accepted. Accepting that sacrifice, he accepted all of us who would ever put our faith in King Jesus. Friends, this is what is at the heart of the Christian joy during Christmas. See, at the introduction, I deconstructed the history of what we know to be Christmas from all those things to Rudolph to Christmas trees, not to be a Scrooge, but simply to take away the distractions. Because church family, if you're a Christian and you take away all those things as beautiful as this sanctuary looks right now, if you were to take away all of these things, we have not taken away what lays at the heart of the joy we know at this time of year. The heart of the joy we know has to do with Jesus Christ coming as the Savior, saving us from our sins. It's the gift of salvation that God brings to us in Jesus Christ. Virgin born, incarnate Son of God, God with us, our Savior from our sins. That is who this baby boy is. Friends, what good news we have before us. Christ Jesus came to save us from our sins. We'll look at that further next week. What joy, what grace. This is the true joy of Christmas. Often when we read about a fictional character like Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, written by somebody like uh, Charles Dickens, who only really understood Christianity to be about morality, you wonder at the end of that story, how, how can Scrooge get so happy at the end? Well, it's a fictional tale, but the thing is, you really can have that type of joy when you become a Christian. Not everything in your life is going to change immediately, but friends, the most important things in your life do change. There really is an outsized reason for joy when you become a Christian and when you are forgiven of your sins. If you're not a Christian, I know this about you. You are feeling the weight of your own sins. You know in your heart of hearts that you have sinned against a holy God, that you've made mistakes in your life and you're carrying that burden. For us as Christians, the reason why we can have such tremendous joy is because that burden has been laid on the one who could bear the burden, Jesus Christ. So we have been set free from the burden of our own sin. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's all because of God's grace and sending his only son, Jesus, as a savior for us. It really is. That's why our celebrations of Christmas Really, if you think about them, our celebrations of Christmas have such tragically and terribly ironic aspects to them. So I'm going to be very careful here, but I want to warn you parents of something. Please take this to heart. I'm not trying to harp on your particular Christmas traditions, but I want you to see them in light of the gospel. And I'll simply just say this. I'm thankful that Jesus does not keep a scorecard of our good deeds and our bad deeds and only give us gifts based on how good we are. That is not an accurate portrayal of the gospel. See, as opposed to someone who comes with things 
for those who are and know themselves to be good, Jesus comes bringing himself and bringing forgiveness, not to those who know they're good, but to those who know they are in need of him. And so my question is, is that you today? If so, my prayer is that even in the midst of the season, you would acknowledge your desperate need for this Savior. That you would repent of your sins and be saved. That you can experience the everlasting joy of the Christmas season. That is our prayer. This is what we desire for Christians listening to this. Just recognize Christmas is not about all these things we distract the gospel message for. Christmas ultimately is centered on what every other day is centered upon for the Christian life, celebrating and being thankful and gratitude for what Christ has come to accomplish, saving us from our sins for exactly who he is. Let's praise him in the midst of this season and let's keep the gospel at the center of Christmas. Christ came. He has indeed. Would you, uh, well, don't stand, but uh, you can stand if you want. You're in the living room. Uh, That's a habit. Let's pray together. Lord, Father, we pray that you would remove, Father, all of our heart's excuses. Lord, that you would use this to draw us face to face with yourself. That you would, Lord, destroy in us our self-righteousness. That you would humble us. That you would draw us by your love. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who has not repented and trusted in the Savior of the world, King Jesus, that they would hear this gospel message and repent and be saved. For those of us who are Christians, Father, we pray that um, even, even though we all know Christmas is probably going to look different, uh, somewhat different for some of us this year, uh, Father, there's nothing that can take away the joy of Christmas. There's nothing that can take away the joy of what Christmas really means. So, Father, encourage our hearts by that fact. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The invitation is simple today. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been convicted, the Holy Spirit stirred your heart of things that you know that you have committed against God, we just pray that you would reach out to somebody and and tell them, ask them more questions about what it means to be a Christian. We'd love to share with you further about that. And Friends, I pray that you'd be encouraged, especially in the midst of this difficult time that the Christmas joy can never truly be taken away from the Christian because it's not uh, so much about family and gifts and food it's about Christ and we celebrate all of these things because of him those things aren't bad in and of themselves Christmas trees uh, decorations Christmas cards they're, they're not bad but friends as long as they don't disrupt and usurp what is at the center of the Christmas season and that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, join us in this, us in this endeavor to keep that the main central truth of what we're excited about. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll guarantee you, you will, you will have joy this Christmas season as you celebrate uh, the Savior of the world coming to save us from our sins. Love you, church family. I hope you're all having a wonderful, wonderful Christmas season. Stay warm. We hope to see you soon. We're praying for you. We love you. God bless.